One of my favorite game shows growing up, easily by far, not even a contest, uh, was The Price is Right. Anybody else love The Price is Right? Really? Really? There, there was only one reason, uh, really, to, to watch The Price is Right, and that was for Plinko. And, um, and so, to my amazement and encouragement uh, to see that there was a new game show that has arisen that takes Plinko and multiplies it by quite a few. Have some of you guys seen The Wall? Have some of you seen this show? I mean, last night my family was absolutely glued to this game show, The Wall. So if you haven't seen it, it's basically Plinko without Bob Barker. So just check it out. It's pretty, pretty incredible. But uh, part of the uh, piece of The Wall is trivia. And uh, I, I don't feel like I'm very good at trivia, but it's always interesting to see on the wall, like how people do with it. So I thought we would try a little bit, uh, a little bit of trivia right now. Uh, this is going to be a little game I call Name the Ancient Tyrant, okay? Here we go. Can anyone name who that is right there? Any guesses? What's that? Caesar, who said that? Alexander the Great is correct. How did you get that? What's that? Okay, so you're, you're super into Alexander the Great? No, okay. He's a descendant. Are you serious? How do you even know that? Ancestry.com? Okay. That's amazing. So yes, this, this is Alexander the Great. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Alexander the Great, if you don't mind. Uh, he came to power after his dad uh, was murdered by his dad's bodyguard when Alexander the Great was 18 years old. So he inherited a massive army when he was 18 years old. Next a slide, this is another, another picture of him, the valiant warrior. He's got the, you know, the sweet little uh, sideburns coming down there, a little bit of ahead of his time, okay? Uh, he was a king, a ruler uh, in the uh, 300s B.C., and lived a very, very interesting life. I, I've read actually quite a bit on Alexander the Great, and uh, two things that I think are pretty hilarious is his smell was part of his renown. In other words, anyone who got around him always said that he smelled very, very good. So uh, that I thought was pretty interesting. You don't meet a lot of kings who smell good as well, I guess. Uh, I know some of you guys have friends that you want to get around them because their aroma is pretty solid, all right? Uh, the other thing to note about Alexander the Great, besides his natural scent, he was undefeated in battle, undefeated. He takes over at 18 years old. He dies at 32 or 33. And between those years, every single battle he fought, he won, including beating the Persians three times. And the Persians at the time, if you've seen uh, some more movies, I mean, the Persians were super hardcore, known to never lose, and he beats them thrice, okay? Now, the crazy thing about uh, Alexander the Great is uh, there's a lot of, uh, not just territory uh, to his name, there's also a lot of quotes. Here was, here was the world that Alexander the Great created, essentially. He, he took over all of that territory, and if he wouldn't have died early, uh, the, the thought was is that he was going to expand eastward, okay? Now, one of the interesting things to note about all of the territory that he uh, uh, amizes here is that uh, battle after battle, he started naming all of these cities after himself that he had conquered. And so he would take over a city, and it was then Alexandria, and he would take over another city. So over 70 Alexandrias, okay, which... 
to me would get very confusing on an atlas, right? Google Maps wouldn't know what to do, okay? But that was, that was Alexander the Great. Now, I found this quote, and I want to share it with you because it super fires me up. I think it's one of the maybe the best quotes ever, okay, outside of the scripture. Alexander the Great says this uh, in the picture of the line he drew. Um, he said this. That's a joke, obviously, okay? Some of you are like, seriously? How do we find that? He said here, I am not afraid of an army of lions led by sheep. I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. I mean, come on. Somebody's going to get that tat. I mean, that's just, that's just solid. You know what I'm saying? Strong, strong words about a leader. Now, he takes over a lot of the modern world. Um, and then when he was 32 or 33 years old, he comes back and, uh, and starts to party based on his wins. And he drinks, as the legend goes, a, uh, a bowl of uh, fine wine. And he comes down that night after uh, the probable, a probability of drunkenness. He comes down with a fever, and two weeks later, he dies, okay? But in between that time, I mean, this dude was ruling, ruling the earth. My question for you is, how would you respond to a ruler or a leader or a king like that? So in other words, if Alexander the Great, with all of his power, with all of his might, with all of his prestige, if he walked in this room right now and he started barking out orders and we were back in the, the ancient times in the area where he ruled, my question is, how would you respond? So we all knew that it was Alexander the Great and we all lived long ago and he walks in here and he says, all right, everyone, uh, here's what we're going to do. Right now, everyone is going to give me 100 jumping jacks, right? And it doesn't make sense and we're all wondering why, like, you know, it's not calisthenic time. But my question is, like, what would you do in the face of that command? Especially when you started hearing that, listen, if you defy, if you go against Alexander the Great, like, it's over. You die. So my guess is, if we were all living in that reality, okay, the majority of us, there would be a couple on the fringe that want to, you know, go against the establishment, Right? But for the majority of us, we would, we would be like, well, I, I really don't want to die tonight, and, you know, jumping jacks aren't that bad, so let's give it a go. Okay, that would be the majority of us. Uh, if he said, hey, I want you to do this or do that, there's a certain level of submission that would come in the face of such a great king or leader that has that much power. Well, um, the big question tonight, as we're getting ready to see a list of 33 kings who all are conquered and die is what in the world from a chapter in the scripture that lists 33 kings all dead what in the world does it have for us and what in the world if we could step back and connect some sort of understanding of a king and his kingdom how could we better understand even why this chapter is in the scripture so I invite you that said hopefully with some curiosity to open your bibles to Joshua chapter 12. We've been waiting and anticipating these two nights, this week and next week. We're calling it a king and his kingdom. Uh, tonight we'll study all of chapter 12, all of it, okay? One whole chapter, a bunch of names. We'll come back next week and continue our study of kingdom. But let's start here in Joshua chapter 12. We're going to read uh, first verse 1 to 6 as a whole, and I think this will start to set the stage for us. Here we go, Joshua chapter 12, verse 1. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land 
beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. In other words, everything we're getting ready to see in the following verses, verse 1 to 6, are lands or kings that were conquered under the reign or the leadership of Moses. Okay, so let's start here uh, after the sunrise. From the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all of the Arabah eastward, uh, Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river as Jabak, the boundary of the Amorites, that is the half of Gilead, verse 3, and the Arabah to the sea of Kinneroth eastward, in the direction of Beth Jeshemoth, say that three times, to the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. Okay, now, again, this text in general, just so we're on the same page, like I said last week, this isn't one that you're just like going to in your Bible study, right? Like, okay, and tonight, everyone, we're going to study Joshua chapter 12, because the reality is you couldn't pronounce half of this, so you'd be off to a rough start. Verse 4, here we go. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnants of the Rephium, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Adrae, and ruled uh, over Mount Hermon and Salica and all uh, Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites, right? And the Maacathites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sahon, king of Heshbon. Am I doing all right so far? Verse 6. Here we go. Help me, Lord. Moses... The servant of the Lord, thankfully. There's some, there's some common language. <laughs> Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. All right. Um, now, that's why you go to school. Okay, right there. Um, now, listen, listen. I want to show you the territory of land that we're talking about here because we've been dealing with a little bit of a different territory. Next slide. Here's, uh, here's where we've been. Okay, uh, Right now in these six verses is those two red areas. Moses conquered those, those two kings. Now, the really interesting facet from verse 1 to 6 is if we look at the next slide, which will highlight verse 6 again, two times in verse 6, it calls Moses a servant of the Lord. Fourteen times in the book of Joshua, it calls Moses a servant of the Lord. And I think that tagline, that attribute, that character trait that's given to Moses tells us a lot about who Moses is and how he views his God. Next slide. I want to look at it from uh, this perspective. If we were to examine your relationship in this room between you and the Lord, you and God, and we were to dig in, there's all kinds of variants in the room. Some of you have a non-existent relationship between you and God. I understand that. I'll say it uh, now. I've said it before. We're so thankful that you're here. Even if you're just here out of curiosity, a friend brought you, you're interested in the things of God, or you're just here because a friend invited you, thank you for coming. Our prayer is that you would come to know the loving, gracious, merciful, and incredible God that our God is. Maybe a misperception of who he is is what you've lived with, but I hope that by the end of even tonight, you understand the depth of his love. Now, still others of us are in all kinds of varied places. There's going to be questions asked about your relationship between you and God tonight uh, that I would say have never been asked of you before. 
So next slide, let's, let's begin with this. Next slide here if you can. In the relationship between you and God, who is the perceived king and who is the servant? Now, the, the right biblical raise your hand when you're six in Sunday school answer is, of course, well, God is king and I am servant. But I'm going to propose to you tonight that I don't believe that the majority of American Christianity is living that way in flesh and blood. What I see the majority of American Christianity is they have lessened God to be their servant in all practicality, and they themselves, and yes, some of us here, are in the position of the throne sitter, and God then is just one of our pawns. If we're talking chess, we're the king and he's the pawn. But Moses was a servant of the Lord which has with it like this overtone of whatever the Lord wants, whatever the king dictates, then the servant follows. The servant goes for it. The the servant listens. And so I just want you to tuck that question away, and we're going to wrestle with all kinds of angles of that particular question tonight. Now, from verse 7 to the end of chapter 12, we're going to see 31 kings that Joshua conquers. I'm not going to read the entire section, okay? I know some of you are very celebrative. Uh, We've already studied all these names. We've gone through these names, okay? What I want to do is show you the bookends, okay? So next slide, let me show you the bookends. Verse 7, and these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan. Okay, so we saw Moses conquering a couple lands on the east side of the Jordan. We've been studying of the nation of Israel conquering all of these kings on the other side. And then the last verse in chapter 12 is showing us the numbers so that you can count and affirm that later. In all, 31 kings. So instead of reading it next slide, I thought we could just enjoy a picture. There you go, okay? There they are, okay? The highlighted in yellow are all the kings Moses conquered. The highlighted in red, very difficult to read, but pretty cool to see in red boxes of love are the 31 kings that Joshua conquers. I sent this uh, picture out to some of our staff. Isn't it just a little bit humbling to even just look at this picture? We know from studying the amount of time that it took to conquer much of that land was very, very minimal. Next slide. It's, it's as if it's God versus 33 kings. And what I've learned and what Joshua affirmed is anything that's on the other side of this sentence, God versus you name it. What we've seen in our study of Joshua, maybe what you've experienced in your life, God versus anything. What we've watched in our study is that God can take an ill-prepared, outnumbered, like hardly matching up army in the nation of Israel who came out of 430 years of slavery and then spent 40 years in the wilderness not training for military warfare 
that God can take this even at times ragtag crew and because he's fighting for them, they win. God versus 33 kings and it does not go well for all of those 33 kings. They all die. So if God can do this, then can I ask you, what can't he do? The power of uh, chapter 12, though, isn't about God versus 33 kings. I'm so excited to share all this with you. There's something else that's happening here in this chapter. Again, it's not a chapter that you would turn to, flip to, study, maybe eat on your own. But what I want to do right now is feast together on what's going on right here in the text. It is insanely Beautiful. Next slide. Let's start here. What is going on in this text? Hebrews 8 tells us this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, Christ, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up. You, what's the last words here? Not who? Not man. See, all of Hebrews, at least the majority of it, is about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so in this text, all the writer of Hebrews is doing is talking about the power of the New Covenant in light of the Old Covenant. We'll explain more. Verse 3, check this out. Next slide. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Verse 4, powerfully. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. The law of Moses explains it. Next slide, verse 5. They serve a copy, and what's the word here? Come on. A shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, Moses who we're talking about uh, even tonight, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, let me explain this. The entire Old Testament is building on this narrative that is God's story that we mapped out here a couple weeks ago. God in his sovereignty is unveiling his story, this plan of redemption. And much of the Old Testament is setting up what we would understand the New Testament to be. In other words, it's a shadow. We could even say a foreshadowing of the things to come. So tuck that away. Next slide. Let's look at it like this from Hebrews 8. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, the new better than the old, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Let me say it like this. Please understand. If the conquering of 33 kings, Joshua and the nation of Israel, and then giving Joshua and the nation of Israel the inheritance, if that was the end of the story, then the rest of the Bible would look a whole lot different. So in other words, if that was the ultimate victory, God taking his people out of the Egyptian hands of slavery, God giving his people into the promised land, God conquering 33 kings, if that was the story, 
that I'm telling you right now, like the scripture would look a whole lot different. But it must be then that the conquering of 33 kings wasn't the end of the story. It must be then that the victory, the giving of the inheritance is just a shadow of something to come, not based on the law now, but based on the fulfillment of the law in Christ. Now, let me show this to you from another angle. Next slide. Hebrews 10 says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Let me say it this way. God could conquer the entire kingdom of the Canaanites. Kill, slay every king, but leave in his wake the problem of sin. That's the point. The old covenant sets up our understanding of the depth and the power and the heinous effects of sin so that we could see God has conquering power. God can do as God pleases. God is king. But there's, there's something else to conquer. There's something else that God is setting up. And what he was setting up in the old covenant was the power and ultimate victory of Christ. So I want you to understand, when you read even difficult texts in the Old Testament, when you come to a list of 33 kings, the initial is like, I can't pronounce a one of these. Hooked on phonics apparently did not work for me. I'm done. Right. And you just run from the text instead of. All right, like what does this passage that is monotonous, even tedious, like what can this teach us about the things to come in the New Testament? Next slide. Let's say it like this. What is the shadow in God conquering 33 kings? Now, pause. Every single one of you right now have a tremendous opportunity. Uh, I understand, as I stated previous, that there is varied uh, perspectives here. I'm inviting all of you right now on a journey with me through the scripture, not my own thoughts, through the scripture on what the shadow is. What is this text? Why is this text so significant? Let's start here. Next slide in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Does anyone know who the prince of the power of the air is? Does anyone know? It's Satan. Now, um, again, I, I talk about Satan here often because he is a very real, powerful, prominent enemy. One that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus is the ruler of literally the air, the prince of the power of the air. And I have often thought, well, that's the most significant uh, text on Satan's power. But my friends, check this out. Next slide. In John chapter 14, here's what Jesus calls Satan. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. So even Jesus says that there is some, what I'll describe later, some allowed power that Satan 
has. Later in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says to the church in Corinth, in their case, the what? The God of this what? The God of this world, you notice the lowercase there on God, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is the shadow of 33 conquered kings? Let's begin with this statement of truth. Satan has been allowed to have temporary power, rule, and dominion. Could the Lord wipe him out right now? And the church said, yes. And my kids often ask me, why doesn't he? When I was teaching my kids about about Satan and evil, okay, the very first question they all three asked when I taught them independently, they all asked the same question. Why doesn't God wipe him out? Why has he remained alive? Why does he still have power? And my answer, excitingly, to each of them was he only has temporary power to show the ultimate eternal power of Christ. That's it. And yes, he has power now. Some of you have encountered that. You've been lured by the temptation of the enemy. You've been deceived. You've listened to lies. He's the father of lies, the scripture says. You've been baited and switched. As Romans 1 says, you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, all based on the enemy. He is powerful, but his power is temporary. So what is the shadow? Well, the first side is there's an enemy. The enemy isn't 33 kings in a land to conquer. It's one that has way more power than all 33 of those kings combined. Can we agree? Okay, can we agree? All all 33 kings Don't even pale in comparison to the power of Satan. So that's one side of the shadow, but here's the other side. Check this out. 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes to his young disciple, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, and I want to bring you into that confession for a minute. In John chapter 18, Pontius Pilate comes to Jesus and says in almost like hilarious form, are you the king of the Jews? And as the conversation goes on, eventually Jesus does what he has done so many times. Uh, You said it, is what he tells Pontius. As if to say, yes. And he says, like, this is why I've come. Okay, That's the good confession, that he is in fact the king. Verse 14, to keep the commandment, Paul tells Timothy unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And somebody feel free to get excited. Look at verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign as we studied last week. Here we go. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, what you're going to find is that phrase doesn't appear many times in Scripture. There's a couple. We're going to look at the majority of them here tonight. But we, uh, we say that a lot. We sing that, especially Christmas time, right? Like, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. My question for all of us tonight is, is that really how we're existing? He's the king we serve. What he says goes. He is the one and only sovereign ruler of the universe. Alexander the Great, 
walks in here, tells us to do whatever, and we would, we would of course snap our fingers in following him because it's life or death. Can I ask you, why are we existing? Like following Christ is not life and death. Why has it become such a joke, child's play, taken so lightheartedly? I would even propose this. We have allowed the joy of the Lord somehow to deceive us into believing that what we're a part of here is insignificant and some sort of game. We've mistaken joy and happiness instead of understanding that the joy that comes from the Lord is in all times, in suffering, in plenty, and in wants, in much hurting, and in much uh, contentment. I'm just saying, my friends, is it possible that our King of Kings and Lord of Lords talk is a whole bunch of lip service? When it comes down to it, he's our servant. That's how we live. Hey, God, I got some ideas for you, so here you go. If you don't fulfill those things, we're going to have problems. We put the little puppet strings on the Lord, and we move him around and jockey him in our perceived minds in the ways that we would have him. That's not what Paul tells Timothy. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What I'm saying right now is it's time to wake up, church. Matthias, my friends, it is time to wake up. We're either serving the king of kings or we're just serving something that we've all made up so that we all feel better about what's going to happen to us when we die. Listen, death, I know for many of you, is a driving fear. And so, yes, we're scrounging around for answers. What's going to happen for us? Or when we watch people die, we need some sort of substance. So have we just created some nice answers that feels good, that warms the heart, that you know, adds a little teddy bear to some suffering? Or are we serving the king of the universe? Well, thankfully, Paul's not the only writer that talks about Jesus being the king of kings. Next slide. Revelation 19, feel free to jump up and down if you'd like. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, and what's the word there? Makes what? Makes war. Some of you have never read this text in this understanding. You're getting ready to have your eyes open. His eyes, speaking of, are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself, verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. When he came to this earth the first time, Jesus, in flesh and blood, he came in a manger, a very humble way. We then saw tremendous humility in the Savior of the universe. It's why all the Pharisees could not get themselves to believe in the Lord because they wanted a militant tyrant to take out the Romans. Instead, Jesus, a humble teacher who loved the orphan, cared for the disenfranchised, uh, loved others like they had never seen. In fact, so much so, literally getting on his knees, getting on his knees to wash the manure-filled feet of his disciples. 
He dies. He ascends. And I just want to make sure we all understand, when he comes back the second time, he's not coming back in a manger. You guys all understand? He's not coming back in a manger. If you want to go to Bethlehem and look for the return of the Lord, it's not what it's going to look like. This is telling us right now, a white horse, he's coming back, who's Robe is dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You remember how John opens, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the, uh, is the enablement, is the empowerment, is the uh, image of the invisible God, the Scripture says. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven, uh, back to the last slide, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, somebody, come on. Made white and pure because of the blood of the Lamb. We're following him. That's right on white horses too. And check this out. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Why? Because sin must be dealt with. And then please look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, that's right, he's got a tat. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he comes back riding on the white horse, on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And listen, I'm just going to be very frank. We can allow the, even the, you know, kind of the majestic piece of this text stir us or all of a sudden we can get super serious about the implications of this. You pick. I got to pick tonight too. I have to pick. If this is going to be just one more time that I read passages like this and I think to myself, oh yes, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Or tonight that can actually mean something. Instead of just being a phrase, this is what I'm saying. Everything in the old covenant, a shadow setting up the things to come. So let's say it this way. Next slide. Look at this. I love this truth. Satan has been allowed to have temporary power, rule, and dominion, but highlighted in the yellow, Jesus is king of kings with eternal power, rule, and dominion. He will win and conquer. Satan, yes, temporary. Jesus, eternal. And so we see God wipe out 33 kings. But my friends, that is insignificant compared to wiping out and abolishing sin. That is crazily insignificant to this next slide. Check this out. As you look at this, now after a little context, after a little meat and potatoes, as you examine and study this again, I just want to know, how are you existing? How are you living? Have you really submitted yourself to Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords, or really when you stop and think about it, this whole deal, this whole life of yours, 
is really, when it comes down to it, about your pleasure, your pursuits, your ideas, your happiness, your ability to navigate through some of the difficulties of life. What I'm asking my friends is have we convinced ourselves that we're serving the king of kings, but in reality, we want him to serve us. So I want to provide some help on this next slide. As I walk through these, just allow the the truth of each of these statements to sink in a little bit. Christ's kingship is lip service, is lip service. When number one, there is selective submission to his authority. What I see in American Christianity is pick and choose. Pick and choose, everybody. Go ahead, grab the stuff that sounds good. Grab the stuff that feels good. Grab the stuff that makes sense. Grab the stuff that has the biggest wins in the end. The other stuff, you can just leave by the wayside. Why? Because ultimately, this is about you. God wouldn't want you to get wrapped up in all that hard stuff anyway. So just do your deal. Can we just agree? When you find yourself submissive to a king, there is no picking and choosing. He is the one that is picking and choosing. He's the one that's saying, this is what I command. This is what I'm asking. There's no delegation here. There's no debate. We're not raising our hands in multiple choice. This isn't a, you know, a grade school relationship. Check here. If you like me, this is I speak and you listen. Now, in a moment of confession, it's easy to right now say, well, well, well Mark, like, of course, yeah. I can see my own sin. I can see my lack of submission. I even in my own mind could understand how I could in 300 BC bend the knee to Alexander the Great because I don't want to die, and yet I look at the king of the entire universe and I pick and choose. I can see my own depraved heart in that. But I tell you what's happened in this text is I am now to this point where I'm tired of it. And that's one of the facets that I long for right now for all of us. Is that what's happening right now in you is not just conviction, but a, you know what, what, what am I doing? How, how have I even convinced myself that I can serve a king and tell him what the commands are? It doesn't make sense. We can't give in to the culture that is trying to describe for us what Christianity is. We must get back to the scripture. Listen, everyone around us is trying maybe not even because they understand, trying to pull compromise from those who claim to follow Christ so they can pin it back against our king. We're ambassadors of a great king. And I, for one, right now stand and am sick and tired of my picking and choosing based on my own convenience. I long for something more. My question is to you. Christ's kingship is lip service. Number two, when our circumstances result in self-centeredness. 
Last week, we studied that God is sovereign, that he's ruler and king over all. And I'm just asking again, is that a belief system of you? Because if not, if not, then what happens is something goes awry, something doesn't go according to plan, something hurts, the, 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 the lines don't add up. What you had envisioned that you would be 22 and married and on your way to whatever, like it, those things don't happen, then all of a sudden it's woe is me. No thought, no thought to God, listen, your will be done. I understand that in the flesh here on earth, I am promised nothing but your love. In terms of eternity, I'm promised a forever relationship with you. But here and now, I was having a conversation with someone about sharing their faith with others. And how somehow they, have, they continue to like find themselves sharing the, a prosperity form of the gospel. The problem with come to Christ and it's going to be all good is read your Bible. That's the problem. 10 of 11 of the disciples killed because of their faith. Stephen stoned because of his faith. I mean, Jesus told his disciples, the world hated me. They will hate you. And then we're surprised. I can't believe the ridicule. I can't believe the persecution. Read the scripture. But what happens in a prosperity slant? Things go awry. Our circumstances force us even more inward, and some of you are right there right now. Your circumstance has caused a self-focus. All you think about is yourself. All you're consumed with is yourself, your loathing, your hurt, your pain. Let's make sure we're all together. We will have to go through suffering, all of us in this room. It doesn't mean we don't hurt with each other. It doesn't mean we won't mourn with each other as the body of Christ and weep with each other. Oh, we'll do all that and it will be beautiful in relationship. But our suffering doesn't negate the commands of a king. Did somebody hear that, please? You cannot say in your suffering, well, now I just get to do whatever I want because this person was taken out of my life. You're going to have to show me that in the scripture. It's not there. Why? Because Jesus has a better way. I know all hope seems lost, but just listen. I know it, it seems lost because you've lost this person and because this job is going down and your finances right now you can't explain. The exact point of that loss is that you could know the surpassing gain in knowing me, Paul said about Christ. Do you guys understand? But everything around us, everything around us is pounding us. Oh, well, man, woe is you. Just surround yourself with more focus on yourself. Build structures and systems all around upbuilding yourself. Less is us. More is him. We have to stop listening to the culture. Here's what I'm saying. Our culture and even American Christianity is downplaying the kingship of Christ. The one who's coming back with a robe dipped in blood, sword coming out of his mouth. They're making a child's play, and we cannot give in to it, my friends. And so now all of a sudden you're starting to see what a, what a chapter with a bunch of names can get us to. Do you guys understand? Next slide, number three, Christ's kingship. 
when we mistake a no from God with a disinterest in our agendas. Um, <clears throat> Imagine if God said yes to everything you asked him for. How'd that be going for you right now? Right? Uh, I'm so thankful that not a person in this room is sovereign. And I'm so thankful to be in a body that is longing to learn more of what it means to celebrate God's no's. But many of you have perceived God's no as he doesn't love you. Maybe, can you just, can you understand this for a second? Maybe he loves you enough to say no. Maybe he cares so deeply about you that he doesn't just give you every desire of your heart. Maybe he's so sovereign that he knows what his kids need and he gives them what they need, not what they want. You guys understand? But what happens in our heart? We diminish the kingship of Christ and we say, well, you're just disinterested. Here, king, I have some ideas of my own. And the king says, whoa, 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 I don't need your ideas. Can we just like take a second and praise the Lord for that? He does not need us. He does not need us to be God. He does not need us to save. He does not need us to evangelize. We get to. We're graced with the chance to be an ambassador. It's a gift for us to be used for the glory of God, but he could do it all on his own. Do you agree with that? And if so, then maybe you're coming to a reality of the true kingship of Christ. At the moment that we believe he doesn't need us, it's the moment we'll be freed to serve. Why? Because we don't need any glory. It's all for him anyway. So God just calls and we'll do whatever you want. Not because you're a tyrant king that's raining things on our face, but because you're a loving God who's invited us in to participate in the mission you set before us. So I know some of you have struggled with number three. Please see it for what it is. How about number four? Christ's kingship is lip service when manipulation is a tactic to get what you want. Hello, somebody. Listen, here's how those go. Uh, Dear Lord, listen, I'm going to obey you in this area if... Thinking somehow that, like, that God is negotiable. Oh, yeah, sounds good. You go ahead. You obey me in that way, and then, you know, I'll go ahead and give in to some of your pleasures and wants. As some of you, maybe not outwardly, but you've had the thought, like I have, hey, God, I'm never, ever going to do that again. And you say it the day before something big is happening. Anybody? That big conversation with your boss, the turning point in the relationship, you're like on your face. God, I will never, ever disobey you in that way again, I promise. And by the way, tomorrow, could it go really well? Could it go really well, Lord? Let me ask a really hard question. After it did, what did you do? I've talked with many who are caught in the manipulation uh, pornography game, constantly uh, bargaining with God, only to see God grace them in brief moments of obedience than to celebrate with more pornography, lessening the kingship of Christ to merely nothing. 
God cannot be manipulated. You may think he has the wisdom of a two-year-old child, but let's not for one more second lessen who God is. He cannot be mocked, and he cannot and will not be manipulated. As much as you cross the lines in your mind, as much as I. Number five, Christ's kingship is lip service. When there is a lack of pursuit to discover the king's character. This is the massive difference between Alexander the Great and our king. Okay, I tried to come up with a number. I couldn't see how many of Alexander the Great's confidants were super close to him. I don't know what that number is, but I'm guaranteeing you it's less than this room. And yet you multiply this room times everyone in the world who can have access to the throne of God in Christ. How much of an invitational God do we serve? Think about that kind of king who provides access to everyone through his son who would call on his name. And yet we look at that king making less of it, not pursuing who he is leaving the text to sit and grow dusty. When God has said, I am your great king and I've given you an entire book and a Holy Spirit inside of you to show you who I am. Some of you, your lack of understanding the kingship of Christ is shown solely in your lack of pursuit of him in God's word. That's it. We could just stop there. I know I would justify it like I have done many times in laziness. I'm going through a season, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's just boil it down to I, in those moments, am disinterested in the kingship of Christ. I don't need to justify anymore. Just my sin. Number six is heaven. divided allegiance what I'm wondering is the powerful shadow that is God conquering 33 kings to only show us how he will conquer Satan if somehow we've gotten confused in who it is that we're serving are you a traitor Are you sitting at the table of multiple kings? Dining wherever the day would take you. Dabbling in whatever king will provide you the most on that day. Are you a traitor? The question is, is there room for traitors at the king's table? Let's look at the tale of two kings, shall we? Is the room for traitors at Alexander the Great's table? I say no. They would all die. And if there's not room for traitors at the Lord's table, then that table would be empty. He died for the traitors. He died for those who had divided allegiance he restored Peter when Peter denied him three times, even though Peter had seen him walk on water. 
He restores. He extends grace. He says, listen, everybody. Ultimately, this table is going to be filled with a whole bunch of former traitors who are now sons and daughters because of what I've done. So come to the table. And bear in mind, it is not just any table. It is the king's table. And so every person in this room right now who even in this moment, is recognizing that you have lessened the kingship of Christ to some mere puppetry. My friends, as much as you've betrayed and mocked and demeaned and blasphemed, the name of Christ right now in this moment can be the complete turning point in all of our lives, including mine. God, we do not want to mock or lessen, or diminish for one more day the power of your kingship. We want and desire for you to speak and us to listen. We want to see you through the lens of our circumstances and not our circumstances through you. God, help us, help us, help us. See you as the shaper of all, as the sovereign of all, as the king over all. Why? Because of this powerful truth. Next slide. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Did Jesus came to the earth in flesh and blood? That through death he might, what's the word? Come on. Destroy the one who has what? Come on. The power of death. That is the devil. And what? And what? Deliver. All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has offered deliverance to traitors. He's offered deliverance to those who would betray, to those who have mocked. Let's stand together. Come on. I have a hard question to end with. I believe we're not called to talk, the scripture says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but does anyone know the scripture? It's a kingdom of what? Of power. And so tonight isn't about us understanding the shadows better. It's about our response to the king. So right now, if Jesus walked in this room and you had to fully submit to his kingship, what would have to change in your life immediately? What would he be right now? That has to go. That needs to go. I know what you're doing over in that corner. I've got a better way for you. What things right now would the king say that has to go by the wayside? Listen, church. The power of a king who has offered a way out of a lifetime of slavery is that we can experience as traitors grace. We go from a traitor to be a son and a daughter. Action is needed. Response is needed. Not because we can pull up our bootstraps but because he is king. So, Father, 
we lay those things down. The ways that we have lessened you. The ways that we haven't lived in light of the victory that we have in your son. The ways we've mocked. We confess as a body that we are your servants. You are our king. So make us your servants then and give us joy in that following. I pray, Father, that the sin that so easily entangles would not any longer. I pray that the yoke of slavery that's held us noose, God, would be gone. I pray that the ways we've listened to culture would be abolished. Show us the power of your kingship, and I pray that you will force us to bend our knee. And in so doing, give us more joy and more hope than we have ever experienced. You are our sovereign king.